Let's turn our Bibles to the book of James. Chapter 5, this morning we are finishing up our series in James. We have an opportunity to uh, look at one last command of James and then also understand how it's not just a leftover. This wasn't an added on thought, how in many ways it summarizes the heart of James as he's revealed it to us throughout this book. By nature, I don't like confrontation. I don't like coming to people and talking to them about uncomfortable things. I don't think most people do, and those who do like it typically don't do it very well. Um, you know, we tend to get very defensive and uptight when people come and talk to us about our lives. But, you know, there's just a handful of people, really two or three, that have the ability to say to me anything they wish. And I may not like it. And I might disagree with it. But I always listen. I always believe they have my best interest at heart. And what I want us to do this morning is understand the difference in as we approach each other, as we hold each other accountable, what a difference it makes in the way that we do it. So let's look at God's Word this morning. James chapter 5, starting in verse 19. James writes, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. A young man sat in his pastor's office. It had been a bad week. He was married, had three very young children. And during the course of the week, it had been revealed to him that his wife was not only a pathological liar who had lied to him about almost everything during the course of their marriage, but she had lied about handling the finances too. And in one week, he found out that not only did he not know the person he was married to, but the house was about to be repossessed, and the car, the utilities were about to be turned off, and he was not only broke, but money was owed to family, friends, and institutions everywhere. Her family had recommended to him that he leave her immediately. Her response was simply to shut down. She refused to talk. She refused to do anything. She laid in bed, would turn away when someone came into the room, would accept no responsibility, would do nothing to help. And so he sat in his pastor's office, a broken man. And in the course of the conversation, When it became clear that he was committed to his wife regardless, the pastor asked the question, Why are you so committed? Why are you staying in your marriage? And his answer was very simple. 
He said, because I love her. He said, because I made a vow to God that I would love this woman for better or for worse. And besides that, he said, I have three young children that I'm trying to teach about the love of Jesus and his willingness to forgive all our sins. If I cannot forgive their mother, how can they believe that God will forgive them? You see, it wasn't his life or his circumstances that mattered. What mattered was love. He was committed to her because of God's love for him and his love for God. But what the Bible teaches is that that kind of love is not simply restricted to marriages. That's the kind of love the Bible tells us clearly that we have for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ because we have taken vows too. We have made commitments when we come to Jesus, we make a commitment to love God with all of our hearts and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind. We give him everything that we have. But then Jesus makes it very clear when you look at the law. He said, you've made a second commitment, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is a common theme not only throughout Scripture, but it's a common theme through the book of James. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 12, James talks about the crown of life. I'm sorry, am I doing this noise? I don't don't feel anything, so I don't think so. Okay, I just want to make sure. James says that we have received the crown of life that is promised to those who love him. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, we inherit the kingdom that is promised to those who love him. You see, our love for God, his love for us is is what brings us into relationship with him. He has loved us and so we love him. But then James goes on to say in verse 8 of chapter 2 that if we love him, we also keep the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's love that binds us together as the body of Christ. It's not the pastors. It's not the elders. It's not the building. It's not guilt. It's not any of those things. It is love. Love that God gives us for Him and each other. Love dictates how we relate to each other, how we interact with each other, particularly when it comes to dealing with sin in each other's lives. And boy, we don't like that. When we face the reality of having to do that, there are a couple of things that automatically pop up in our minds. The first has to do with others. And we say, am I my brother's keeper? Am I really responsible for that person, for how they are living? You know, it's what Cain asked God. He said, I don't know anything about Abel. <laughs> it's your business, not mine. And in regard to ourselves... Our typical response is, you have no right to speak to me. Only God can judge me. After all, Jesus said, do not judge lest you also will be judged. 
My life's none of your business. That sound familiar? But think about that for just a minute. Are we our brother's keeper? Yes. Cain found that out (laughs) in a very ugly way. He was responsible for his brother. You see, salvation is not just a relationship that we have with God. If you really believe in our covenant theology, what we understand is that when God redeems us, He not only brings us into relationship with Himself, but He draws us into relationship with each other. That's why when James begins the passage I read to you, dear brothers, it's not a throwaway phrase. It's not just a general way of referring to people. I used to have a pastor's wife who referred to everyone as brother or sister. Brother, sister. I always thought that was pretty cool. Until I figured out the only reason she did it was that she didn't take the time to learn their names. James means something here. He says, if we are in Christ, we are family together. You can't avoid it. You cannot belong to Jesus and not belong to each other. We stand together before God as the bride of Christ. It means something. And second, it is true. Only God can judge us. But that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility for the sin that is in each other's lives. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Do not judge. But He doesn't tell us not to remove the speck from our brother's eye. He just calls us to humbly acknowledge the reality of our own sin and confess it before we go to our brother. And this is what James is referring to when he says, if a brother should wander from the truth, bring him back. And this calling, this command that James gives us is not an afterthought, it's not an add-on to the end of the book, but it is representative of of the entire book And so to understand this passage, I think we have to go back and do a quick review of the letter. Look at the context of the letter of James to us. How do we bring back our wandering brother or sister in Christ? First, we do it by listening. If you have your Bibles, turn back a page. James chapter 1 verse 19. James says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Be quick to listen. You know, I, in my lifetime, have learned some hard lessons. One of the things I've learned is that I have come to know compulsive liars, Thieves and drug addicts who are far closer to Jesus than I am. What I have learned is that often our sins are not the problem, they're symptoms of problems. And when we look at a person's sin and identify them by their sin, we've done a terrible thing. Because that's not what Jesus does. Jesus looks at the heart of the person. 
Because you see, every person has a story. Every one of us. You know, that, that's part of the problem with church. When we church, we all clean up and we come together and we sit together for an hour and we smile and we ask, How are you doing? And we all say, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are the kids? The kids are great. Work okay? Oh, yeah, we're doing fine. And it's almost all a lie. To a certain extent. Because we all have pasts and struggles and pains. We have all lived through things that none of us really know about. That influence the things that we do. That's why James says, we need to be a people who are quick to listen. Hear the stories. Don't ask people how they are. Ask them who they are. Understand something about them. You know, drugs, adultery, arrogance, anger. We really listen. We just assume that these things characterize the people who do them. But James says, if we love them, we want to dig deeper than that. We want to listen. Second, we bring our wandering brothers and sisters back by being involved in each other's lives. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, If one of you says to him, or suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You know, a lot of people figured out a long time ago that cold call evangelism isn't very effective. Just go through the neighborhood, knock on doors, want to tell people about Jesus. I'm not saying someone can't come to Christ that way, but generally, it's not very effective. Standing out on the street and preaching, I have nothing against it, just recognize that's not a terribly effective way to reach people for Jesus. The same is true for holding each other accountable. You can't do it from a distance. James says it's not enough to think well of each other and pray for each other. James says we are responsible to meet each other's needs. And you can't meet each other's needs if you don't know what they are. And you can't know what they are if you don't know them. Now it's easy for us to say, well, that's their responsibility. If they want me to meet their needs, they need to tell me what they are. But we don't do that. It doesn't work that way. Love doesn't wait for you to ask. Love goes to find out the need. And that includes talking to people and getting to know how people are walking with Jesus. Understanding the struggles they have with sins and what sins they are susceptible to. It means walking with them, helping them, praying with them. I was in a very difficult meeting once with a young woman who had months ago taken up living with a man who was not a believer, had become pregnant, 
the elders had gone to her house to talk with her. And as we sat down and started the meeting, she just shook her head and started smiling. And then she laughed and said, this is such a joke. She said, you don't know me. She said, where were you a year ago? When I was lonely and hurting and couldn't make ends meet. Where have you been for the last eight months when I've been living with this man? And nobody knew about it. He says, but now that you can see that I'm pregnant, you're all concerned about it, aren't you? She says, you don't care about me. You're just protecting your reputation. And you know what? She was right. She was absolutely right. It was a life-changing confrontation that evening, but it wasn't for her. It was for us. That's why things like our groves are so critical. That's why James says elsewhere that hospitality is critical. We must be willing to get involved in other people's lives. We can't be personally involved in every person's life in the church, but we need to be involved in other people's lives. We need to, need to love them enough that we want to know them. We want to open our lives to them and be involved in their lives. We want to love them enough that if they begin to wander, we see it, we understand it, we care, we come alongside them. We love them. Bringing people back doesn't begin after the sin has happened. It begins by love. We bring people back by taming our tongues. Chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. <laughs> you know, when we hear some particularly scandalous news about someone, what's our first instinct? Isn't it to tell someone else? And invariably, when we do, the conversation starts something like this. I am so worried about so-and-so. I am so worried about them, I just have to tell you about this. But, don't tell anybody else. I would be deeply surprised if you, even have, if you haven't either said that or heard that at some point in your life. That's why James says the tongue is a fire. <laughs> when we do not have control over our tongue, when it is not important to us what we say, when we're more concerned about being in the know than we are about loving someone else, we have the ability to set someone's life on fire. We do have an obligation to talk about these things. But it's not with other people. It's not even to begin with your elders or your pastors. 
Jesus says very clearly in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. If somebody is in sin, now I know Jesus says sins against you, and so we can say, well, this sin isn't against me, it's against a person's husband or a person's wife or something else, but that's irrelevant. The obligations that Scripture gives us are so clear. Gossip is always a sin and we are our brother's keeper. We're called to go to each other. And we don't like that. It's difficult. But love demands it because we protect our families. There are sins in my family that no one will ever know about. Why? Because I want to protect them. I want them to understand that they are safe in our family. That our family will gather together. We will deal with issues. We will love each other. We will work them out. But what happens in the family stays in the family. And in the same way, we go to one another out of love. We tame the desire to be able to tell people things they don't know. And out of love, we bite the bullet and we go to the person and we say, I love you. I have shown you that I love you. I am a part of your life. Now please listen to me. Fourthly, we bring one another back from sin through humility. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. When we go to somebody who is caught in sin, who is walking away from the truth, we don't approach them as our being the strong and righteous ones, and they are the weak sinners. Because if that is our approach, and often, unfortunately it is, then we've not resisted the devil. We're, we're, we're aiding him in his work. Instead, James says we should be constantly assessing our own lives. Look at what he says. This is what he says to us. Repent. Wash your hands. Recognize that I am dirty and I am in need of cleansing. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded sinners. Our minds are divided. One is for love for God and the other is love for self and love for things of this world. And he says, our hearts need to be burned pure. And then... James says something extraordinary. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. You know, I've been reading this passage for over 50 years. I've preached it many times. I never understood this passage. Never understood that call. Until recently. For the first time in my life, I understand what it means to grieve and mourn 
and wail. In a way that I wish I didn't know. But the harder lesson has been this. As I read this passage, I have wept and grieved and mourned over personal loss. But never have I done it for sin. I have yet come to the point in my own heart, in my own sanctification, where my heart has been that broken over the reality of my own sin. James says we need to reach that point. Because it is not until we reach that point that we understand what it means to humble ourselves before God. Because when we mourn and when we grieve and when we wail, we do so because we know we are utterly helpless. I have no recourse. There is nothing else I can do. I am broken. I am weak. I'm helpless. And James says, it is not until we reach that point that we have truly come to the point that we have humbled ourselves before God. That we have become His. That we understand that I cannot do this on my own. I desperately need You, O God, to restore me and heal me and lift me up. And James says He will. And when He does, it changes the way we relate to each other. It means that when we go to someone who is wandering away and caught in sin, we're not going from a a, a position of strength. We're simply going as sinners saved by grace who wants our sinning brother or sister to understand and experience the same uplifting and grace that I have found in my life. We're not better. We're the same. And more often than not, if we have done what James calls us to do, we understand not only, we're not even the same. Most of the time, I find my own sin is far worse than those of any, any other people I talk to. And having humbled ourselves, and James closes out his book by saying we bring one another back through prayer. Not only do we come as sinners, we come as helpless sinners. We don't have the power to heal anyone or save anyone or fix anyone. We just want the God who has lifted us to lift our brother or sister as well. So we pray. Not God fix them. We pray, God, give me the grace to show them what you've done for me. So that your Redeeming power and glory may be seen and experienced through my weakness. And when this becomes our approach to each other, we are actually speaking the truth and love to people who know they are loved. And they may still get angry, and they may still get offended, and they may walk away from us or the church. But we hold each other accountable with this thought. If they are Christ's, He will do His work in them. 
and we become like the Father who stood by the door gate watching for His Son. Seeing Him from a long way off and instead of saying, I told you, you fool. Why didn't you listen to me? Runs and embraces and welcomes them home. We're family. Loved by God. Let's let this be what guides our hearts and our relationships. Let's pray. Father, do your work in us that we need it so desperately. Give us the same love for one another that you have for us. And in doing so, make us as your people what you want us to be. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.